Welcome to the Speakings Podcast. My name is Sandra. I'm a writer and philosopher in training as I'm currently a PhD student. And in these episodes, I speak about philosophical and spiritual topics in a mainly unscripted way, as I hope to capture some of the dynamism of thought that philosophers have to really wrestle with each idea, taking them seriously. And I hope you do the same as I present these ideas to you. You can leave reviews or email me to let me know what you think. In the meantime, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. I think this impulse to speak at least somewhat in the moment, without a script, without forethought, comes from a particular view of reality that I sense dimly around the edges of my life and that I'm still trying to live into and find language for. Philosophical language mostly, sometimes poetic language as well. But I suppose I'm trying to find philosophical language for an experience that is poetic. And what I mean by poetic is that it has a particular rhythm and a particular symbolic structure that is closest to the way that we experience life, especially in moments of great beauty or connection or communion. This is why sometimes I still call myself a poet, even though I think it's more accurate to say that I write poetic prose. I don't really write poetry. But I think of poetry as referring to and living in this most imminent disclosure of reality. Reality as it appears to us in the moment when we are in tune with ourselves. This is a poetic structure, I believe. The structure of experience is poetic. It has a particular rhythm to it. It has a symbolic structure. And when lived close to ourselves, it has a particular resonance and beauty and even, even an elliptical sort of meaning. And by that I mean it's not a meaning that is rationalized or that is added on after the fact in the conscious way of storytelling, for example. We often talk about our lives as if we were the narrators of our lives, and I think we can be the narrators of our lives. We can approach our lives as if they were stories. We can craft them as if they were simply malleable clay waiting for the maker, as if we are the makers. And I think there's utility to that can be incredibly healing to see your life as a story. But it already posits this gap between your experience and your conscious crafting of that experience. As I've mentioned in past episodes, it's the story self that is not fundamentally real. direct experience with the world there is no story 
And yet everything is meaningful. The question of meaning only arises after the fact, when we're already in an abstract mode of philosophizing about our lives, thinking about the meaning of life. No one thinks about the meaning of life when they're in direct conversation with life. How do we enter that conversation again? This interests me as I think that to be a modern human being is to inhabit diverse forms of alienation. There are many reasons why we feel alienated from the world, from ourselves, from each other. I can't speak of all of them in this podcast episode. I'm sure we will speak of more in the future. But what I'm most interested in, in this moment of climate crisis, is the ways that we are alienated from the living earth. I'm very, very grateful that people are beginning to reconceptualize our relation to the earth in ways that allow for the earth to have a sort of sentience, a sort of intelligence. Many people criticize the Cartesian mode of seeing the world. Most people know Descartes from his famous, I think, therefore I am, statement that has been reworked and debunked and angrily responded to by so many philosophers since. And of course, Descartes was not the founder of this mind-body dualism of this human-earth alienation. He was just giving speech to something that was already well underway um, during the Enlightenment. With Galileo, with Newton, there were all of these ways of reconceptualizing the world that slowly made the human something wholly other than the world we live in. So when did this conversation cease between the human and the living world? Well, I think that once the human became self-aware, learned to tell stories, grasped the concept of death, we felt quite terrified of this newfound temporality. Before the advent of self-awareness, we don't experience time as an abstract entity, as something with a beginning and an end. We simply experience life as a flowing something. No beginnings, no ends, no hard edges. Once we experience time in the way that we experience it, we begin to grasp death and we begin to want to have nothing to do with that death. I think that's one reason we are terrified of our animal urges because it makes us like the animals. And the animals are those who are subject to death. We don't typically preserve a place for them in the afterlife, right? We have to separate our mythologies from the animals. Our fear of death infects so much more than we think. I think it has a lot to do with our preference for plastic and impermeable technologies 
as somehow we seem to attach ourselves to their impermeability, to their indestructibility, and think that somehow we too can become impermeable to the waxing and waning of time. Time exfoliates away our identity in many ways. It wears away our health, our vitality. It challenges our sense of self, and it threatens us with self-dissolution if you believe in the finality of death. And I think that you have to believe in the finality of death, even if it only exists in a story. You have to believe in it at least long enough to come to terms with the unreal nature of your stories. So we distance ourselves from the natural world, hoping to become immune to the messiness, the decay, the terror of what we quite smugly called nature, as if it were something different and distinct from us, from human nature. And we are distinct in many ways. I think it's it would be impossibly naive to think that humans are identical with apes, though we are more similar than we would often like to believe. Of course, humans have evolved in absolutely miraculous ways. We are quite distinct from the rest of the world. I've mentioned that with the origin of the psyche and the opening up of a desire that cannot be filled with the advent of this separate self. I think that's one reason why we are unique, is that we tend to have a ravenous, irrationally ravenous appetite. This also means we are capable of incredible acts of creation, as well as destruction. So how did this living conversation stop? Or at least become quite dimmed, so that even now when we approach nature, we approach it from a place of almost trying to listen, wondering if there's something there, not quite knowing how to interact with it. It, again, this term that I really don't like, I don't use the word it in the entirety of this book that I'm working on, Wakings, because I think it's the origin of many of our problems. But this conversation implies an aliveness. I'm not sure, actually, if aliveness is the right term here. Right now, I've been reading a bit about animism, thinking of how what animism really means and how something like animism might be revived in the Western imagination in order to rekindle these relations with the more-than-human world. And one thing that's quite telling about the term animism is the fact that it's a Western emissary of ideology from the beginning. If you just Google the word animism, the definition that you will get is something like the human attribution of soul to inanimate objects. So in the very definition is a debunking of the term. It says there's an attribution of soul to inanimate objects, assuming that objects are inanimate. And then, you know, these primitive peoples intentionally using the 
derogatory term here because that tends to be the assumption that these primitive indigenous peoples are quite naively assuming that the rest of the world is somehow conscious in the way that humans are conscious or have souls in the way that humans have souls. And first of all, from my readings of indigenous ontologies and indigenous forms of animism, there's no assumption that the rest of the world is ensouled in the way that humans are ensouled. And I think that this comes again from a Western assumption that humans are the only ones with souls. And thus we are these godlike creatures that must then confer soul onto the inanimate earth or imagine it to be there. Even some people today who would like us to practice animism, it's more like an ethical as if. Let's treat the world as if it were animate. And this is a strange thing, I think, because, again, it assumes that this animacy is coming from humans. It's the same Cartesian assumptions that we are the only ensouled creatures. In reality, most indigenous ontologies, at least from my studies, believe that everything participates in a one life force, a one ensoulment, a one impersonal soul or mind. Humans participate in this. Other animals participate in this. Plants, trees, everything. Now, there's different types of aliveness. A rock is not alive in the same way that a creature is alive that can live and die. But everything is an incarnation of an impersonal soul or animacy. It doesn't mean that the rock experiences itself as a rock. It doesn't mean that the tree experiences itself as a tree. It simply means that there is something that we all share. Now, I want to be careful when I say something. I don't want your mind to go to some physical characteristic that maybe a scientist could figure out what this is. Is there, um, you know, a particular, a particular set of, um, lifelike characteristics that we would use to, um, establish the sameness of all living creatures. And I think there are certainly things you could point to. But that's not what I want to do because I think that would be a misunderstanding of science. The question I'm asking here is not scientific. It's about the ways that we can know anything at all. Not just the structure of perception, but the structure of knowledge. How can science know anything, right? This is the relationship between philosophy and science that has been forgotten, but science was a form of philosophy. And philosophy would ask these questions that science cannot ask with such clarity because it depends on the answers that philosophy offers, right? Science is already a derivative of these deeper questions. So how is it that we know anything about the world? One way of seeing this is that in order to know something about the world, there has to be something shared 
between the external world and the internal world of the mind, let's say. And I know that this is a dualistic structure, but knowledge is inherently dualistic. Knowledge is about the communion or the relations between two separate beings or types of conceptual entities, whether conceptual or empirical. It's about these relationships between more than one thing. So knowledge is always dualistic, and that's okay, as long as we understand that reality is not dualistic, and that knowledge, again, is a derivative of something deeper that is sensed rather than said. So we have a relationship between two separate things. How do I, the human, know something like a plant? I am not a plant. How do I know the plant? How can I see it? How can I perceive it? The general idea that many philosophers have agreed upon is that there has to be something that matches the inner and outer world. There has to be a sort of shared atmosphere, a background of sameness upon which we can approach difference. I have to share a world with the plant in order to understand the plant. There has to be a mutual intelligibility. And I think this is what animism refers to, or what this animate worldview refers to, is that there has to be a structure of sameness that facilitates this conversation. We might say, oh, we don't understand dolphins. We can't understand the language of a rock. And yet, we understand enough to know that we don't understand we're able to grasp this difference precisely because there is something that is understood. What is completely outside a shared, intelligible world would be completely outside of perception, language, or analysis. This also applies to strange concepts such as finitude and infinity. How do we know either of these things if it's not matched to any common experience? I suppose we've experienced the finitude of other things or other people, but we cannot experience our own finitude, and neither can we experience infinity in the empirical world. So how are we able to know something like infinity if no one has ever experienced it? Now, it's not that we know it in a full sense, because it seems that that would be impossible for a finite creature to know in a full sense, and yet we're able to posit these things. How is it there, that our brains can posit something of which we have no experience? So there's this assumption that I think is true in many theories of epistemology or how we know things, that in order to have a concept, we need to have a matching experience, even if that concept ends up growing far beyond that experience there still has to be some sort of experiential origin, something that that concept can refer to. What does infinity refer to? It's a strange possibility that humans can think that, however dimly. And yet I don't want to make a point here that because we can think infinity, we are infinite. I think it's probably safer to say that Whatever we are has to be something that is not infinite or finite. 
that is able to bracket and embrace both of those. That can hold this contradiction without belonging fully to one or the other. And I think, again, this references the difficulty or the contingency of our conceptual worlds. Both terms like finitude and infinity require one another in order to exist. Each opposite requires one another in order to exist. And yet what is it that allows those opposites to exist in contradiction? What is the structure of sameness, this impersonal thing that makes these opposites intelligible? If the world were truly infinite, we wouldn't know finitude. If the world were truly finite, we wouldn't know infinity. We have to have opposition in order to know the other. If the world were entirely green, for example, we would not have a word for green because we wouldn't be able to see it as something that stands out from all objects. We might simply say, the world is all intelligible to us. Why? Well, perhaps because everything's green and we are also green. But we wouldn't have a word for green. We can't see what we are. We can sense it, perhaps. But we can't see it. So these are some of the questions that I want to play with over time. I'm sure that these questions will change, narrow, broaden, incarnate in different linguistic forms. But... I want to know your thoughts on this because I think that a reclamation of spirituality that is embedded in the earth is very, very important for this age. A recognition of the aliveness of the earth is very important in this age. How do we recognize that aliveness? Do you think that everything is animate in some way? Do you think that everything shares some common ontological structure, or more poetically, that we are bound by a single atmosphere, a single breath. Perhaps we are all one body, and everything is animate only insofar as it is part of that animate body, just like my lung is animate because I am. Again, I can't name what that green is, what the structure of sameness is, because I'm part of it. But I think insofar as this world is intelligible, it's intelligible not because we think, therefore we are, but because we are. I am. And there's something about this being that must be shared in order for us to communicate it all across our differences. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. What is it that we share? In the meantime... Thanks for listening.